As decades pass, the significance of football shirt numbers is plummeting to zilch. William Gallas, 10. Aruna Kone, 2. Vicente Lizarazu, 69. Nonsensical pairings which break from tradition. So what should shirt numbers really mean? And which nostalgic names from the depths of football obscurity have embodied those shirt numbers more than any other? This episode of the Eleven celebrates the reliable fullback three, the flashy winger seven, the prolific goalscorer nine. Footballing traditionalists by nature and by number. Arthur, welcome. Thank you very much, Ben. It's very nice to record in person at your house today. We don't get to do this very often. <laughs> it's very rare. Today we're playing a 4-4-2. I completely agree with you about those players who don't personify their number. Rui Patricio, number 11 as yeah, well, was yeah. a very random one. Really strange. Um, but it's been very interesting looking into the classic number twos, the classic number fours, etc. today. Yeah, get in touch with us at 11 pods. It's the word and not the number. Um, And tell us who you think we've missed out of this 11. But we're going to be taking a trip back down memory lane uh, and talking about some of the nostalgic and obscure footballers uh, from years gone by. Right, number one, Ben. I imagine there were a lot of choices for this one. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much every goalkeeper ever. <laughs> oh, I really did have the short straw trying to find a goalkeeper that embodied the number one jersey. So I tried to think a little bit outside the box. Ironic for a goalkeeper. <laughs> um, and I picked someone who had the number one shirt retired for them. Wow. Yeah, I was okay. surprised. Um Unusual, obviously, for a club to retire the number one shirt, but there were several options. One of the most notable is the actual reason why Ruri Patricio wore 11, uh, and it's because they retired Carla Kame. Carla Kame's yes. number one shirt at of Wolves. Course. Um, interestingly, they've now given that one shirt to Jose Sarr, right. the current goalkeeper. So Lucky man. He's taken it back over, but it was a Kame's for a while. And, but the name that sprung to mind when I looked at the list, and I don't know why I remembered this from the depths of my knowledge, but Miguel Calero. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. No? No. No, no, no memory. <laughs> um, he had his shirt retired, Miguel Calero, at Pachuca, which is... Oh, Mexico. Yeah, exactly, yeah. a Mexican side. Um, for whom he played 395 games wow. between the year 2000 and 2011. And they kind of took him on as one of their own, despite the fact that he was born Colombian. He had his shirt retired um, after a tragic event, actually. He died after two cerebral thrombosis episodes, aged just 41. Um, and it was a real tragedy because he'd become a club legend. You can imagine playing that many games. Um, So the number one shirt was retired in honour of Miguel Calero. He was obviously a Colombian who played for his nation, hence why I knew him. He was in the squad for the 1998 World Cup, um, although he didn't play at that tournament. He made 50 appearances for Colombia between 1995 and 2007. Um, was involved in winning four CONCACAF Champions Leagues and the Copa Sudamericano in 2006. Uh, and he also won the 2001 Copa America wow. um, for his nation. So relatively well decorated. And I think he would have gone on to make a whole lot more appearances for his nation 
had he not have been a goalkeeper during a very strong time for Colombian goalkeepers. He was competing with Farid Mondragon and before that René Higuita, which is why he never really consolidated a place. It's very interesting that that nation's produced three incredibly iconic goalkeepers in such a similar period of time. And actually, I have to say, winning the Copa America in 2001, that's a huge achievement for that nation. Yeah, it really was. Um, And, you know, now we see Colombia as one of the major forces in South America. But aside from Carlos Valderrama, there were very few that you would pick out as well known during the time that Calero was playing. I guess it was before John Viafara's days. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, I think with Calero, the reason he sprung out for me was the fact that he was such a colourful character. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but he was nicknamed El Condor. Oh, okay. And uh, this was because of his massive wingspan. He was <laughs> six foot three inches tall. Um, and as a result of this nickname, he used to have a pair of wings decorated bespoke on each of his goalkeeper shirts around oh, the number one. That's brilliant. So uh, a really incredible tribute to that nickname. And he was not only colourful in terms of what he wore, but also the way he played. He was an outrageous dribbler past defenders in tight spaces. Um, A very modern goalkeeper, if you like. Wholly reckless, but um, exciting to watch. And he was easily spotted because he used to wear a baseball cap or bandana in gold to shield his bald head from the sun. Very good. That reminds me actually of Chris Kirkland. Yeah. He's always a baseball cap wearer. Exactly. (laughs) You're 100% spot on. Um, And donning this weird attire, Miguel Calero actually managed to score four goals throughout his career. I mean, but I suppose that does pale in comparison to René, though, doesn't it? It does pale in comparison to René, but what I found amazing, having seen these clips, is the fact that his most famous goal, um, which came in the, the final second of a vital semi-final against Shivas, was scored as a header whilst he was wearing his baseball cap. <laughs> so I don't actually know how it made a connection with his it's not, forehead. Because it's not your forehead, so it's got to be, it, it's gotta be the, the, it was the like, top of his head, was it? It or? must have been, because it kind of been like the can't, point can't of the, the cap. can't use the beak. But it, it appeared to, he appeared to strike it beautifully, if you can do, from your head. Um, and it nestled in the corner. That's incredible. Um, Perhaps that sort of outlined the ideal heading zone for him. So it, was, it made him a more potent weapon. In the where, where the badge is yeah, in the centre of the absolutely. camp. Was, Head me here. Um, another of his goals was an impressive volley. And uh, a final goal was a pop shot from behind the halfway line, wow. which looped over the keeper. So Miguel Calero was a character by by all accounts. Um Perhaps not your most typical goalkeeper, but certainly because he had that shirt number retired, I feel like he is your classic number one in this case. Usually we go left to right on mm. the 11. We did think it was probably going to be making more sense to uh, you, our listeners, if we went numerical order for the first time today. What we do at the 11 is we always try and help out our listeners <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> we make it as easy as possible to engage with our content. So yeah. uh, this is just a part of that. It's just a cry for help. Please, it is. please engage. <laughs> <laughs> at 11 pod, if you want to thank us for this decision. Uh, who is your number two? I've gone for Gary Kelly. Oh, Gary. I have to say that is the most classic number two you could possibly have picked. Yeah, I mean, many listeners might be clamouring for Gary Neville. But as regular listeners of the show will know, we do like to look a little bit beyond what many might consider the the obvious choice. Mm. But Gary, I think in being a one club man, 
Yeah. I think that's something that is quite classic for a number two. They're your sort of reliable, solid presence there. Um, he spent the entirety of his 531 game career with Leeds United. He wore the number two throughout all of that, with the exception of his first season where he wore number 22. Mm. Um, so he was clearly a fond of the number. Yeah. And I think he was number 22 because he started things off as a stick-thin right winger. But he was given oh. his chance at right back by manager Howard Wilkinson due to an injury to Mel Sterland. So the Leeds fans were initially pretty bemused to see this 19-year-old lining up for their first away game of the 93-4 season away at Man City. But any initial misgivings were quickly disbanded when he put in a really good shift and made the position his own. Mm. Um, He ended the season playing right back for Republic of Ireland at the 1994 World Cup in the USA, and he didn't miss a single game for Leeds in two and a half years. Wow. He was the model of consistency... He had pace, focus and tenacity and he was a really frustrating opponent and a teammate of of unequalled standing, I'd say. He's such a Leeds hero that there is a Leeds news and opinions site and podcast called Right in the Gary Kellys. So, uh, yeah, I'll need to give that a listen, actually. What does that refer to? I guess it's talking about the the ghoulies. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe the Gary Kellys. Kellys. Maybe they became a euphemism for, for bollocks because he was so... Such a hard fighter. Yeah. Maybe something like that. So I think the characteristics of a right back would be reliability, leadership. Perhaps I would say they're unglamorous. Mm. Uh, They rarely bomb forward or score, frankly. And his two club career goals speak for that, I'd say. He was also a lot of fun off the field, as Shay Given describes. He said, Gary Kelly would turn out to be one of the funniest people in the Irish setup. He is bananas. In Dublin one night, Gary jumped onto one of the horse and carts that takes tourists around the city. He had this dirty-looking blanket on his head, whipping the horse as he whizzed around Temple Bar with passengers on board. He also had this thing about running into hedges for no reason, just for crack, just to get a laugh. What? He'd get out of a taxi, spot a hedge, and he'd be off, full pelt into it. He'd wrestle himself out of it about 20 minutes later, bruised and bloodied, his shirt all ripped with this stupid smile on his face. (laughs) What? Just completely bizarre. But just the team joker, I guess, in in that capacity. And he was actually... Thickest thieves with his nephew. Do you know whose nephew was or is? I purely because of the name, I'm going to go for ex Reading player Stephen Kelly. No, but it is an ex Reading player who you're fond of and a former eleven member. Oh dear. Um, I'm going to put you out of your misery. Yeah, it's Ian Hart. Really? It's his nephew. Wow, and they were playing at the same time, right? Playing at the same time. Bizarrely, that must mean that. Gary Kelly's quite a lot older than Ian Hart, but they played together and apparently they did all these practical jokes together. They actually loved it. That's crazy. I'm, I'm amazed by that. Um, but great to get Gary into an 11. I think he's a stalwart of this type of podcast, isn't he? Well done, Gary. Number three. So we're going to switch to left back um, for the benefit of our listeners. And for me, a number three is an uncontroversial name on the team sheet it's a fullback that isn't necessarily flashy is to some extent old-fashioned and seasoned not not a spring chicken although i appreciate chickens can be seasoned which somewhat (laughs) ruins that metaphor and therefore i've gone for clint hill clint hill (laughs) 
This is such an unglamorous team so far. <laughs> the most glamorous player is the goalkeeper. Um, he was an old school fullback capable of playing at centre back too, and he had this hard man persona. Um, in his early days at Tranmere, uh, Clint Hill would actually be sent off four times wow. in the 99-2000 season um, and was kind of ill-disciplined on the field, but a very likeable character off the field. His former Rovers teammate, Dave Challoner, said of him, Clive was a funny one. Off the pitch, he was the most Clint. classic... Sorry, Clint. <laughs> Clive. Clive. <laughs> Clive Hill has a ring to it, though, doesn't it? But Love that. Whether you want to call him Clint or Clive, he, he was a funny one, according to Dave Challoner. Um, off the pitch, he was the most placid lad you could meet. On it, he was massively driven to win. And in those days, that manifested itself in him getting sent off an awful lot. He'd go on to play for Oldham, Stoke City and Crystal Palace before finally reaching the top flight with QPR, which is probably That's definitely where, where I remember him from. Yeah, yeah, where he's most commonly known. Um, he was sent off again on the opening day of the season uh, for a headbutt on Martin Petrov of Bolton in a 4-0 defeat at Loftus Road, which is classic number three for me, <laughs> getting sent off for a headbutt. Um, but actually, this would be a low point during his time at QPR because he would go on to be a, a bit of a club legend, playing 169 times, serving them as captain, and, and not necessarily because of their quality of performances, but more because of his leadership and no-nonsense approach. He was one of the fans' favourites during that time. He captained for me, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, possibly one of the most cobbled together Premier League teams in history. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah. agree. <laughs> I mean, Harry Redknapp assembled it, um, and some of his favourites were in there. Nico Cranchar, of course. Sandro, yes. uh, Bobby Zamora. Very but good. he paired them with some bizarre exotic choices like Mauricio Isla. Eduardo Vargas yes. and Mauro Zarati. But he what did. he played for QPR. He played for QPR, yeah. Amazing. And, and it was Clint Hill's role to try and bed them all together, which okay. he didn't do hugely successfully, I'm not going to lie to you, because they did go down. Was that the team with Basinga in it? Yeah, it was. They made, they made just like, seemingly had this, and it's probably akin to what we might see in January from Newcastle. They had this new money and just decided that they would sign anyone and everyone who'd play for them and yeah. gave some of them ridiculous contracts as well. They even had Julio Cesar. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, during this time. So um, Clint Hill really embodied the, the kind of true British spirit of that QPR side. And, and it was that reason, really, that the crowd took to him. Paolo Maldini is perhaps the most famous number three when we think of football history. So you could understand if he had had a love from the support that maybe got a bit carried away and, you know, shrines and fan memorabilia, etc. You might not expect that from Clint Hill, but that's exactly what happened during a spell later in his career at Rangers in the SPL. A Rangers fan, David Lowe, paid £40 to register his new name as a tribute to Clint Hill. So he <laughs> named himself Clint Hill. Oh my God. He shared images of his official national records of Scotland form, plus an email confirming his deed poll application, telling his Facebook followers, just paid £40 to legally change my name to Clint Hill. But just days later, Clint was told by the club that he would not be having his contract renewed and would be leaving at the end of the season. Unfortunately for the previous David Lowe, the now Clint Hill, 
due to Scottish law, he wouldn't be able to change his name back for a further five years. <laughs> <laughs> so there is still a man walking round Glasgow Town Centre called Clint Hill oh. in honour of the left back that he never really got to see. That's hilarious. Poor old Clint. Poor old, well, I mean... The, the former David, David Lowe. David, yeah. yeah oh. I know. But great to get Clint in. Clint and Kelly as two fullbacks. That seems very typical, doesn't it? Fantastic. Number four is a midfielder. Yeah. Um, this is where him. we get slightly out of kilter. Yeah. But I, I can imagine our listeners are flummoxed. They are flummoxed. What are they what what are they doing? Yeah. But Red they are about to hear about the legend that is Stefan Freund. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's really made up for it. It seemed like a very straight shootout between Vieira and Makalele for mm. this number four shirt. I was looking for a sort of hard as nails defensive midfielder, someone to shield the defence in their time of need. And Stefan seemed like the obvious choice. He started his career at Stahl Brandenburg, coming through their youth system. And he said that the Stasi made an unsuccessful attempt to recruit him as an informer during his time at the club, apparently due to them not having enough leverage on him. His family were just too clean. Um, But he got through that adversity and moved on to Schalke, where he was successful before leaving them for one of their rivals, Borussia Dortmund, in 1993. During his time at Dortmund, he won the league twice in 95 and 96. He won the Champions League in 97 and was known as this kind of enforcer, often sort of man-marking key players out of the game. And for me, that's just a classic trait of a number four, the hard man of the team, willing to put their body on the line at the expense of a great deal of natural talent, to be honest. Um, He did, though, achieve a lot of success internationally as well with Germany. He made 20 appearances and was a key part of the side that won Euro 1996. And upon signing for Spurs in 1998, he was described by the club's director of football, David Pleat, as the kind of midfield action man that every club needs. He was expected to fulfil two roles for Spurs, essentially bringing defensive solidity and acting as the nasty bastard in the centre of the park, basically. Near the top of the league, Chelsea had Dennis Wise, Man U had Roy Keane, Leeds had Lee Bowyer, um, all players who were pretty tricky customers and Spurs for years had been deemed to be too soft too much of a a pushover and so they hoped that Freund would sort this this all out unfortunately it seems that that was all he did caught offside website writes Stefan Freund gave absolutely everything on the pitch in terms of blood sweat and tears the problem was he was simply awful having no ability (laughs) to pass a football shoot straight and tackle he actually gave every person in the stadium the belief that they could still make it as a professional footballer. Oh no! You would be hard pressed to find a worse midfield to don our famous white shirt in the last twenty years. That's pretty Which, cutting. It is cutting, and it surprises me, frankly, because reading about his time at Borussia Dortmund, he was very successful internationally as well. And so Spurs had signed a player who wasn't yet past it. I think he was twenty-eight. And, and still, you know, at the peak of his powers. But in five years and 131 games for the club, he never scored a competitive goal and grabbed only one assist. And I think that's what we're looking at here. Whilst I see number four traditionally as the, you know, the, the bulldozer in the centre of the park, that position, I think, has, has developed a lot over the last couple mm. of years. Whilst in the past you had players like Freund, 
in more recent times, you've had Michael Carrick, Fernandinho, Sergio mm. Busquets, players who are not just expected to win the ball back, but they're expected to start counter-attacks and yeah. do more than just being that bulldozer. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. That's how that num- shirt number's transitioned over the years. I mean, for a player who played professionally for Germany to be slated so much by the Tottenham fans, he can't have been hugely popular. One thing I noticed that I hadn't realised, that he went on loan to Leicester City oh, in I 2004 <laughs> and played 14 games for them. Well, there we go. Yeah, that was a completely unknown move that, yeah. that I had noticed. That and, is bizarre. But also, I have these faint recollections of Stefan Freund having this absolutely atrocious haircut. So, I think this was a one-off game for Borussia Dortmund. Right. Where he basically... Because he had pretty short hair for yeah, most of his career. for Tottenham. And yeah, it was this kind of yellow and black kind of entwined ponytail. That's the one. That... Yeah obviously was classic to the Borussia Dortmund fans I guess that would make him a loved figure in in their hearts but it just does seem very out of kilter and frankly I saw photos of this online when I was doing my research and it was only one photo so I think it was probably just a one-off do you reckon he, he took off the hair or maybe it's, maybe it's a, a, an attachable yeah could have been <laughs> so good he has become a proper cult hero though with Spurs fans despite his lack of ability uh, reportedly off the field he sat in the crowd and joined in with a chance when forced to miss a north london derby through suspension and then having retired as a player he turned up in the away end at old trafford in 2005 wearing his own shirt from his only silverware with spurs which is the 1999 league cup and he also went dressed and this is very ben warden i think he went dressed to the 2015 world dance championship as Tinky Winky from the Teletubbies. <laughs> How did you find that? There's a, just a brilliant article about... Well, it shows pictures of him in his in his Tinky Winky costume. It's yeah. just phenomenal. That's phenomenal amazing. <laughs> Love it. So number five, traditionally a centre-half. And I think generally, when you look at the names like Ferdinand, Cannavaro and Beckenbauer that have worn this shirt... Typically, it's paired with a confidence, almost an arrogance, surrounding the art of defending. It's not just a crunching tackler, but someone who's prepared to live dangerously at the back. I can't wait to hear you've gone for in that. <laughs> One name sprung to mind. Lorenzo Amoruso. <laughs> Very good. Born in Bari, Italy, uh, Lorenzo would represent his birth town for seven years, helping them to win the Mitropa Cup in 1990, which was an early European club competition. He only came to the UK aged 26 and enjoyed his most fruitful spell at Rangers. He played over 150 games for the Glasgow club in six years. He'd win nine major honours with the club, including domestic trebles in 98-99 and 2002-2003. But despite all the success he had, he, he actually worked incredibly hard to prove doubters wrong. Amoruso was booed by Rangers fans after several poor displays and tactical errors, and he clashed with the management at Rangers several times, resulting in an eventually aborted move to Sunderland. Advocat began to sign defenders, Dick Advocat this is, uh, in a bid to replace Amoruso, including Bert Conterman and Paul Ritchie. The fact that <laughs> neither of us know who they are suggests he didn't do a great job of that recruitment. Uh, but the Italian remained after his replacements failed. 
in many ways, I feel Amoruso was a victim of being too cocky. He was guilty of some horrible errors where he was outstripped of possession, giving the ball away in front of his own goal, some of which happens, unfortunately, in the old firm derby. And this eventually led to him being stripped of his captaincy. He was actually quite a controversial choice to begin with. Do you know why, Arthur? Was he just absolutely rubbish? <laughs> well, there was that on reflection, but it was actually because he was Catholic and Rangers being a Protestant club. He was the first ever Catholic captain oh, wow. on the side. Um, it, it was interesting. It was during that sort of time that the old firm team started to let in Protestants and Catholics into their squad. Um, you might remember Gennaro Gattuso oh, playing course, for Rangers yes, around yes. that time as well. Peter Lovengrans, or was he a little bit? He was a little bit after that. I, I don't know whether he was Catholic or Protestant. Well, I mean, you know, the Danish, you... the Danish are, are historically. Uh, are they? Pro- no, no, I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, do get in touch at eleven pod. <laughs> tell us if Peter Lovengrans is Catholic. Amoruso did have some particularly good games um, in the early two thousands, and Simon Fisher from Sky commented on his performances after he won the Players' Player of the Year in o one o two. He said, what sets Amoruso apart from the rest of the league is his ability to read the game. The Scottish League is full of defensive players who like nothing more than to propel the ball into Rosette. But to be fair, there is a time and a place for that. Amoruso dominates play from the back with grace as well as power. His ability to nick the ball off an attacker's toes is one of his main strengths. This season, he's made 36 interceptions, a total no other SBL player can match. And while this is undoubtedly his forte, he still puts in his fair share of graft. And that description for me is, it conjures up number five to me and is why I felt like Amoruso would be a great pick. He'd finished his career at Blackburn Rovers before a brief spell at Cosmos in San Marino. <laughs> which uh, I must say, I didn't even realise they had club football. Apparently they do. <laughs> Cosmos. Um, and he recently, in case you were wondering what Lorenzo Amoruso is up to now, starred on the Italian equivalent of Love Island with his wife. Oh, wow. Basically, with his wife? Yeah, basically in Italy, they do this thing called Temptation Island where couples go on and endure a series of tests to prove whether their relationship is built to last. (laughs) They basically lure each of them into affairs with other women and stuff like this. It's quite bizarre. Sounds awful. Um, And they're in there for like a month or whatever, and then they come out and it's the test of their relationship. So he's done that. Good lad. And he's still married. Yeah, I believe so. So, um, Well done, Lorenzo. Lorenzo, number five. Yeah, I think I find it interesting that he was never capped by Italy mm. throughout his career, considering in many of those stretches he was enormously successful and was a good defender. But I guess he could be the equivalent of, you know, your Steve Bruce, mm. you know, uncapped by his nation, but one of the best ever to yeah, not be capped. Totally. One for us to consider, Arthur, when we do our uncapped Italy 11. <laughs> Here's Amaruso. It's a long way out, shaping off of the shot. Oh, what a goal by Amaruso! Oh, that's magnificent! So we're going to take a little break from our 1-11. to um, It was Christmas recently, and I don't know about you, Arthur, but I played more than my fair share of board games. I love a board game. Yeah. Absolutely love board games, yeah. So uh, welcome to what is the debut and trial, if you like, of a new game connected to obscure and nostalgic footballers. This is... Pericards Against Humanity. 
I assume you have got Vincent's endorsement for this game. I haven't yet, but okay. if this goes to plan, maybe we can reach out for him and, and see if he wants to get involved with the game. Um, who knows if this is going to work? You're just going to have to play along with us. But Arthur and I both have a series of cards, as one does in the classic game. I'm going to read out five statements with gaps in them. And it is our job to place cards in those gaps in order to uh, fill hopefully the most amusing or accurate sentence possible. The cards are players, predominantly clubs and items connected with football. So I think we're just going to have to see how this goes, Arthur. Have you got everything you feel like you need to have for Pericards Against Humanity? I do. I've got my Pericards and I can't wait. Yeah? Okay. Are you feeling rude? I'm feeling very rude. Okay. Yes. Feeling rude Van Nisseroy? Very much so. Or rude Hullet? More rude Hullet, I'd say. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, without further ado, uh, let's start with the first of our sentences. If there's anyone ex-football club should be signing this summer, it's X. How he never won a Ballon d'Or is beyond me. (laughs) So I'm going to look at my cards as well. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, fantastic. Um, If there's anyone... FC Vaduz should be signing this summer, it's... Sylvain Legwinski. (laughs) (laughs) How he never won a Ballon d'Or is beyond me. (laughs) And I've gone for, if there's anyone Baitar Jerusalem football club should be signing this summer, it's Segundo Castillo. <laughs> How he never won a Ballon d'Or is beyond me. Well, that's brilliant. I like I like yours, Arthur. Good. I think Thank you. Vaduz and Legwinski. Yep. I'm happy to, to go with that. I the think they're a sentence. marriage made in heaven, they, those two. They yeah, do yeah. feel like they work together. Let's try this one, number two. I once saw X in the dentist... He was so nervous, he was running around reception, clutching X. (laughs) Arthur. I once saw... Igor's Stepanovs. In the dentist. (laughs) He was so nervous, he was running around reception, clutching... His groins. (laughs) (laughs) Really in the wrong place. Dentist. He was probably clutching them because he was trying to find where the hospital was. That's awful. Igor... Uh, I've gone for I once saw Stefan Mbia in the dentist he was so nervous he was running around reception clutching his copy of This Is Football (laughs) 2 I loved This Is Football you really really clutched at my heartstrings there Stefan Mbia has too he he took it everywhere with him when he was nervous I love that Um, sentence 3 I would sooner change my name by deed poll to X and support X football club. I've got one I think that works quite well. Okay, go for it. I would sooner change my name by deed poll to Anthony Vandenborough than support Portsmouth Football Club. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> An ex Portsmouth player. There he goes. That's a match made in heaven. I mean, I'm not sure I'd love to change my name to Vandenborough, but yeah, <laughs> I think that's better than mine actually. I've, I've, I had. I would sooner change my name by deed poll to Jossip Skoko <laughs> than support Wickham Wanderers Football Club. <laughs> Jossip Skoko. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's good. Pericards against humanity making its debut here what Um, a game and sentence number four of five don't worry we're nearly back to the 11 (laughs) out of everyone in football history x consistently spent the longest in the shower we'd all left by the time he'd lathered up x (laughs) arthur out of everyone in football history tai taiwo (laughs) 
consistently spent the longest in the shower, we'd all left by the time he'd lathered up. His whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Tai Taiwo wetting his whistle. That's quite a thought. That is really quite a thought. Wow, that QPR changing room. Imagine Stefan and Beer clutching his copy of This Is Football. Just loving it. Tai Taiwo wetting his whistle. For that one, I had out of everyone in football history... Jonathan Cagliari consistently spent the longest in the shower. We'd all left by the time he'd lathered up his agent. (laughs) (laughs) Real uh, real, uh, interesting relationship. Great tales, yeah. yeah. All worthy of 11 inclusion. Um, you, You should check out X's new website. I hear he's selling X in return for Panini football stickers. Arthur, are you ready? Yeah. You should check out... Oleg Luzhny. new website. I hear he's selling... His stash of Stenhouse-Muir matchday programmes. <laughs> in return from Panini football stickers. I didn't know Oleg Luzhny was a fan of Stenhouse-Muir. Huge fan of Stenhouse-Muir. Wow. Massive fan. Fantastic. Always been a fan, in fact. That's really great. He started their fan base in, in Ukraine. Did he? he did. Wow, what a yeah. man. Uh, I said you should uh, you should check out Branko Strupar's new website. I hear he's selling his match-worn football shirts in return for Panini football stickers. Love it. Yeah, it works perfectly. It's absolutely it? perfect. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, that was Pericards Against Humanity. I don't know whether you'll ever hear that again, but it was novel, it was unique. I mean, I'm devastated that we've just missed Christmas Mm -hmm. uh, for this, so obviously no sales this year, but perhaps we can make a real push for it next year. Fantastic, sounds great. But the breakthrough came just before the interval. Ian Hart's free kick met by the deftest of touches by Pericard, the Frenchman's sixth goal of the campaign. I've just heard in the in this short interlude that you turned down the chance to have Tay Taiwo wetting his cuddly Gunnosaurus. <laughs> it was very tempting, but I just thought wetting his whistle worked Made very well. Perfect sense. It yeah. really did. Uh, who's number six? So number six is a name that is perhaps too obvious in my mind, but I don't think he's as recognised as a player of his talent should have been. Okay. It's Aldair. Oh, do you know what? I don't even know who he played for, but I remember him playing for Brazil. Well, I can talk you through his career, Ben. That is exactly what I want. He started at Flamengo in his native Brazil, where he caught the attentions of European scouts and wound up at Sven's Benfica. He won the Portuguese Super Cup and reached the final of the European Cup in his only season there. So it was a season of immense success. And that led to him signing for the club. He must be synonymous with really, mm. and that's Roma. Okay. Yeah. So he signed there in 1990, and he'd stay there for 13 seasons, marshalling the back line and becoming a true club legend. He played a total of 436 games with the Giallarossi, scoring 20 goals in total, and becoming the club's most capped non Italian, and earning the nickname Pluto due to his apparent likeness to the Disney character. Interesting. He's the sort of the dog dog in Mickey Mouse. I don't really quite get that, but I don't see it. No, neither do I. But the Roma fans saw it, and that's what they called him. And I think he loved it. So we're all good. Yeah. He won one Serie A, one Italian Super Cup, and one Italian Cup. Also reaching the UEFA Cup final in the same year, and he was recognised in 2000 as one of the best players in the world by being selected in the FIFA 11. Mm. Yet. 
Still, he remained loyal to Roma in spite of their relative lack of success during his time there. He was a real leader, an essential component of number six in my mind. He'd been given the, the captaincy in 1998 by Abel Balbo, who was the coach. But in October 1999, he took the decision to pass the armband on to a young Totti. Ah. Um, even though Totti was just 22 years old, Aldair said afterwards that he had passed on the captaincy as it was time for him to take up his responsibilities for the team. And he could see, I guess, what a club legend Totti would turn out to be mm. and what a captain he was for that club. At the end of his testimonial game, he presented his number six shirt to President Franco Sensi, who retired the number on the supporters' request. It was held in retirement until 2013, when Aldair himself requested that it be reintroduced for new signing Kevin Strootman. Mm. He said it would be great to see the number six back on the pitch, especially for those youngsters who've never seen it. Totti was once asked to describe Aldair in a few words. He replied, two words aren't enough. He's too good for that. He's a part of Roma, and that's how we'll remember him. He had 80 caps for Brazil, an absolute rock at the back, um, a World Cup winner and runner-up, a mm. Confederations Cup winner, and twice Copper America winner. He had superb vision, incredible technical ability, um, his passing range and ability to read the game always put him a step ahead of opponents despite a relative lack of pace. And his confidence on the ball and adeptness at these long balls enabled his team to advance into midfield and create chances for his teammates. I think probably the most comparable of the players that we have in the Premier League today is Virgil van Dijk. He yeah, seems very yeah. van Dijkian mm. uh, in, in makeup, just an incredible presence on the ball and, and strength and command at the back. And I think that's something that we like seeing in a number sixes. So for me, that's Aldair. Yeah, I, I love that pick. Um, I, actually, it strikes me that when you go back to the 90s and the early noughties, players like Aldair, Cesar Sampao, players like Lucio and Juan, Brazil had some great centre-backs, didn't they? They weren't just a kind of samba flair outfit. Mm. And that's probably why they were so successful and hard to beat. Yeah, in many ways, he is a, a very Brazilian centre-back in the sense that he was so comfortable with the ball at his feet. Mm. and had, I guess, a little bit of that Samba flair, but also strength and, and command at the back. An excellent player and very pleased to, to slot him in. Now, as you will know, if you've listened to the 11 before, each week one of our 11 is up for grabs and we get some fantastic nominations in from friends of the show or football personalities or journalists. Uh, and this is no different. We've got two which are coming in and it's number seven, which is up for grabs. So we'll save that till the end when we'll find out who is nominated for a Twitter poll that you can vote on. We'll skip for now, therefore, to number eight and the other central midfielder playing alongside Stefan Freund, but I think more of an attacking influence. I see an eight Arthur as box to box, full of energy, a leader by example, perhaps, but perhaps more so than the number four, someone who chips in with goals too. Obviously, Steven Gerrard. Yes. prime example of a number eight but too obvious yep. for the 11 so I've gone for a player a little bit further back in time that in my opinion was a Gerrard of his particular domestic club and that's Robbie Earl. oh a brilliant pick yeah Robbie Wimbledon Earl. legend Wimbledon legend but 
perhaps one of the unknown things about him is that he was also a Port Vale legend. In fact, he was voted as Port Vale's fans' favourite player of all time. Oh, wow. He played 294 games in the Football League for Port Vale. Is that more than Wimbledon? Um, I'm just just doing the maths. You've given me a difficult piece of maths, but yes. Because he played 578 league games in his senior career. 294 for Port Vale so I believe wow. that means yes there we go um, and he was a two uh, a two club man which is not a phrase but a two, it is a two club man is, is, is a thing a two a club thing. man um, so he played for Vale for nine years between 1982 and 1991 where he was a cult hero considered one of the best midfielders ever to play for the club um, and he would spearhead Vale's promotion from Div- Division 4 all the way up to Division 2, forming an outstanding midfield partnership with Ray Walker. Do you remember Ray? Not really. No, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> In July 1991, the big moment came for Robbie Earl when he was transferred to Wimbledon for a fee of £775,000. Um, And it was later reported that they were so desperate to sign him that Chairman Sam Hammam locked Earl in a room at Wimbledon during transfer negotiations and only let him out when he agreed to sign for the club. (laughs) Basically held Robbie Earl hostage, which I'm not sure you'd be allowed to get away with these days, to be honest. He would take to top flight football like a duck to water. Um, he played alongside cult figures such as Aidan Newhouse, John Fashionu, Vinnie Jones, Laurie Sanchez, Jason Yule and Marcus Gale. I have this very fond memory of Marcus Gale and Robbie Earl teaming up for Wimbledon. It was kind of just beyond the crazy gang era, really, for the club. And they were a, a mid-table Premier League side. Um, but Robbie Earl was the star and he ran the show. He was known for his late runs into the box and his ability to finish. Um, also heading the ball, he was a particularly good header of the ball, despite the fact that he was only five foot nine. I particularly fondly remember a goal against Leeds in the 98-99 season where he doggedly fought for the ball on the edge of the box before squirming a low shot in off the post past a hapless Nigel Martin. Love the the word squirming. Squirmed it. He really squirmed it. Um, One thing that quite surprised me about him, actually, he was never given an England cap despite his form for Wimbledon and that meant that at the age of 32, he decided to slightly reluctantly sign up to play for Jamaica. So he's, he's perhaps the sort of the um, Mikel Antonio of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, in many ways, I think he was. Um, but he did get to represent Jamaica at the World Cup. And in fact, he scored for them in a 3-1 defeat by Croatia in the group stage. Uh, they went out in the group, sadly, yeah, Jamaica. To be expected. Yes. Yeah. Since football, he's uh, kept working in the game, but in a media capacity. And he did hit the headlines a little while back, I don't know whether you noticed this, for a bizarre sacking as an ITV pundit. Mm, I don't remember this. So he was working at the 2010 World Cup, and at that time, presenters at ITV were allowed to buy tickets for matches and give them to their friends and family. So Robbie Earl took them up on this offer, and he bought around 40 tickets for Holland versus Denmark. Unfortunately, his match tickets ended up in the wrong hands and attending the game were 36 girls wearing bright orange mini skirts, uh, which was part of a publicity stunt for a Dutch beer company. (laughs) Robbie Earl said, I have absolutely no connection with this marketing ambush whatsoever. 
I have not profited in any way from these tickets. Call me naive, but I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I hope when people hear the full story, they will see me in a different light. Now, I've searched long and hard, and I haven't found the full story. (laughs) So either Robbie Earl knows something we don't, or one of, of his family, or maybe him, has been selling these tickets on to a Dutch beer giant. One of his family's a big investor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Earl got the sack Aww. from ITV for this bizarre stunt, and Not he's good. barely been seen on media since. Number nine. Who's going to be scoring the goals for this 11, Arthur? So I've gone for Ivan Zamorano. Oh, wow. Um, Chile. Chile, correct. Chile. And, and a Real Madrid and Inter legend, I would oh, say, okay. mostly. Uh, didn't make it over to the Premier League. At the beginning of his career in native Chile, he did enough to get a move to Swiss side St. Gallen. Mm. Um, he was nicknamed Bam Bam, which I'm not quite sure why. Potentially another cartoon character reference. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? I but like that was how... a like little kid in the Flintstones, wasn't it? Yeah, bizarre. I don't get that one. But it also feels a bit bizarre that he did enough to, to earn a move to St. Gallen. <laughs> I feel like that seems like a bit of a bizarre step up for a Chilean striker. <laughs> so good. Uh, he did take to European football like a duck to water, though. He scored wow, plenty like of goals. second player in the eleven that's... A duck to water. Was, was it? <laughs> Him and Robbie O will get on brilliantly. They're both ducks. They just, <laughs> just, just love water. He earned to move to, to Spain, which was certainly a step up. He went to Sevilla, okay. uh, where he would again prove successful, uh, earning a move to Real Madrid in 1992. And it was there that he enjoyed the most successful spell of his career. He scored 101 goals in 173 appearances and helped them to win a first La Liga title in five years in the 1994-5 season. He finished league top scorer with 28 goals. He was regarded certainly as one of the best strikers in the world at the time, and in the air, he was unparalleled. I mean, I know you say Robbie Earl was good, but this guy, Zamorano, unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) His crowning moment undoubtedly came in that first season when he scored three and helped set up the other two in a 5-0 thrashing of Barcelona. Legendary status secured. Mm. However, the emergence of a young Raul led to his departure to Inter in 1996. Gigi Simone, who was his head coach at Inter, said, I still remember how Zamorano incited the team before going on the pitch. Every match was like a war for him. And I can think this is so evident in a brilliant video on YouTube of him singing the Chile national anthem before a match against Brazil. His passion in that video just gives me the chills. And after he finishes singing the song, he goes and sort of riles up the troops and and, heading into battle. Zamorano only managed 20 appearances and four goals in Simone's one full season in charge. But he was the dream strike partner. He attracted defenders' attentions and freed up space for Ronaldo, who scored 34 goals that season. The arrival of Roberto Baggio in the summer of 98 created a problem, though. He insisted on taking Ronaldo's number 10 shirt with the Brazilian duly handed Zamorano's number 9, which he'd worn throughout his career. Bam Bam had a rather unique solution to that problem. He decided to take the number 18 shirt and added a plus sign between the two numbers. (laughs) 
it not only showed a firm grasp of arithmetic, but frankly showed that he was a man who knew what it took to be a number nine and yeah. he wasn't willing to give it up that easily. Mm. Um, as well as Ronaldo and Baggio, Zamorano had to compete with the likes of Mutu, Rakoba, Vieri during his time at Milan. But the Chilean remained a regular until he left for Mexican side Club America a month short of his 34th birthday. He wasn't finished there, though. It was a childhood dream for him to play for Colo Colo back in Chile. So he signed. He scored eight goals in 14 games, which was pretty damn good Mm. for a 34-year-old, and then hung his boots up in 2003. On an international level, he was brilliant. Him and Marcelo Salas combined to form one of the most feared strike partnerships in the world. Between them, they scored 41 goals in just 49 appearances between 96 and 98 and were incredibly fearsome. And for me, I think Ivan Zamorano is that archetypal number nine. Mm. He not only lays on goals for his teammates, but he scores plenty himself. I think that number nine needs to be a strong goal scorer. You can't go your career without scoring regularly. He scored his fair share. Love that. Uh, did you know I once went to a fancy dress party as Ivan Zamorano? You did not. I did. It was <laughs> You had to go as like iconic footballers. And I had a red t-shirt at the time. I was at university, so we had no money. And, and I, went, I had a red t-shirt and a curly wig. I went as Ivan Zamorano. <laughs> Why did you just have a curly wig lying around? I just had one. Because I think the previous year I'd gone as Marouane Fellaini. <laughs> and I thought I could always double... I could go as Salas the year after if I Absolutely. needed to. It's such multi-purpose. The dream. Who's playing at number 10 then? Well, I think actually out of every shirt number in the game, number 10 is one of the positions that's changed the most during history. I mean... When we look back 20 years or so, the number 10 is a centre-forward just as much as the number 9 is now. But obviously with the switch of formations and the prominence now of either a diamond in midfield or a 4-3-3, the number 10 has become synonymous with that hole just in behind the striker. You were saying Ralph Hasenhutl calls both of his attacking midfielders number 10. He does, yeah. He plays a 4-2-2-2 and the two behind the strikers are essentially our wingers and he always just refers to them as the number 10s. So I think that's maybe perhaps a sort of Germanic phrase. I think think Ralph Rangnick would say that as well. Mm. The position has changed a lot. Yeah. So I tried to pick someone who has played in both positions over the course of their career. Someone who's played up front but has also played in the hole just in behind. Uh, And that man, is Guillermo Franco. (laughs) Sorry, honestly, you have this incredible ability to just make me laugh with any player you pick. (laughs) Guillermo Franco, how could we have forgotten him? He was a versatile forward. He could play as an out-and-out striker, but was probably happier in a more supportive role. Very good at holding the ball up. Probably better at his link-up play and his unselfish running than as a natural goalscorer. Um, but certainly very effective in a lot of the teams he played for. His full name is Guillermo Luis Franco Farquharson, which I think is a brilliant name. It, it reminds me of Lord Farquhar. Lord Farquhar. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. Um, he was born Argentinian, but became a Mexican national. Um, he was prolific in his early career in South and Central America, 
a star for San Lorenzo in Argentina, this time as a nippy wide player, before becoming a club legend in modern times at Monterrey in Mexico in a more advanced role. I love a nippy wide player. (laughs) Nippy wide player. Oh, nippy wide player. It sounds like Nicky Lauder. No, it doesn't sound like (laughs) Nicky Lauder at all, actually. He led the league in scoring during the 2004 Apertura with 15 goals in 16 games. And he was part of the team that won the Mexican Primera Division in 2003, achieving the runner-up position twice in 2004 and 2005. Uh, And that was what caught the eye of the Mexico national team and earned him a call-up in 2006 and 2010 to their World Cup squads. He joined West Ham United in 2009 as their new number 10. Um, He was a free agent at the time, aged 33, uh, and no one really knew who he was. So I think people were a little underwhelmed thinking that Guillermo Franco was going to try and keep West Ham in the league. But he actually had an incredible impact in Did the he? few games he played. He scored his first goal for the team in 2009, um, October, uh, to put them 1-0 up against Sunderland away from home in a game that finished 2 all. Uh, but he also simultaneously became the third Mexican player to score in the Premier League. Do you know who the first two were? Just out of interest. Um, one of them's got to be Carlos Vela. Correct. Um, the other Jared Borghetti. Correct. Yes. Well done, Jared Borghetti for uh, Bolton Wanderers. Very well done, Arthur. Uh, in April 2010, he assisted Scott Parker, who scored the winner in a 3-2 victory against Wigan Athletic. And that was a win which would see West Ham safe from relegation. So... In 23 games for the Hammers, he scored five goals, which I don't think is actually that bad for a 33-year-old who'd only really played a little bit in Spain, but primarily in South America, uh, and was signed as a free agent. It wasn't enough to keep him on, though. He was released at the end of his one-year contract. Um, He was described by Bobby Chu, who wrote for the Bleacher Report, as having a never-say-die attitude when he played for West Ham, an intelligent player, a naturalised Mexican who endeared himself to the Upton Park faithful, earning him adoration and adulation alike. But then, aside from Carlton Cole that season, West Ham's attacking options were only Mido, Elan and Benny McCarthy. Elan. Yeah. Oh God. So it wasn't. I didn't exactly... even know Benny McCarthy played for West Ham. Yeah, I think even. it was when he was past it, yeah. beyond the Blackburn days. I think the number ten as well at West Ham is has been a pretty iconic number, having yeah. Paolo Di Canio wear it and having the likes of Marlon Harewood. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so got to keep up with it. I mean, a few players that really were very well respected by the West Ham faithful. So to have that much pressure on you, I know the number seven is a very big deal at Southampton because you mm. follow in the footsteps of Matt Letizier, which is not easily done. Yeah. So perhaps there was a weight of expectation on him when he moved there. Who's number 11 completing our attacking line? I think playing in the midfield, really. Correct. More specifically on the left, Ooh. we're going to play him. Most people think of Ryan Giggs, but I think of his compatriot, the late, great Gary Speed. Oh, nice pick. Yeah. What a legend. I think his career, statistically speaking, is pretty incredible. Uh, At the time of his retirement, he had the most Welsh caps for an outfield player with 85, the most Premier League appearances, 535, and a total of 841 senior club games and 134 goals Mm. in his 22 years as a professional. His career also had its fair share of achievements. 
He was a vital part of Howard Wilkinson's Leeds team, which won the last First Division title in 91-2 before it became the Premier League. And he helped Newcastle reach the FA Cup final in both 98 and 99. Sadly, he was unsuccessful in both of those. As a player for First Leeds, then Everton, Newcastle, Bolton, Sheffield United, I see him as the ultimate team man. In my mind, he bought the level of the players around him up in an yeah. almost Michael Jordan-like fashion, genuinely. Big claim. I, I, just, I just think he made everybody better. Whilst the players he played with would perhaps grab the headlines, it was Speed who his teammates would always claim was the, the actual man of the match. Whether in the centre of midfield or on the left, or occasionally he was asked to play left-back or anywhere else to plug a gap, he was one to get on with the job at hand and do it brilliantly. He had the knack of arriving in the penalty box at the right time to contribute vital goals. He also had an exceptionally powerful header. Mm-hmm. And another priceless ability at the other end of the field to read the game and cut out trouble with, with a perfectly timed interception. He was the consummate professional both on and off the field. And I think that's shown by the longevity of his career. He was doing the hard yards in Allardyce's Bolton <laughs> at the age of 39. I, Allardyce is Bolton. Do, does Bolton exist outside the realms of Allardyce? That's such a good point. I don't know. Uh, did anyone else even manage Bolton? Like, um, Gary Megson. Gary Megson. <laughs> I think that, that longevity was down to his embracing of modern sports science, a diet, yoga. is somewhat of a trailblazer because that sort of thing we see in football a lot these days. And then he had a brief stint managing his final club, Sheffield United, uh, before the opportunity of managing Wales arose. Mm. I think that it's it's quite clear for all to see that it was him who laid the foundations of the success that Wales have achieved in recent years. Obviously, they, they reached the, the semi-finals of Euro 2016. When he took over, they were 111th in the world rankings, uh, and he led them to five victories in 10 games in mm. 2011, uh, as they rose 63 places to 48th. I think he fundamentally changed the ethos of the Welsh football setup. He brought the fans back. He united that nation behind their crop of young, talented players. But tragically, two weeks after his last game he took charge of for Wales, he uh, took his own life. It rocked the footballing world and was a devastating loss for his family. Importantly, I think it's since sparked conversations about mental health across football and other sports, but is an incredibly sad loss for football in general. He wore the number 11 for Leeds and Newcastle, which were his two most lengthy stints. And for me, I just think he encapsulates that number perfectly. The team man, one to get assists and goals and also be equally effective at the back. Mm. Perfect, Arthur. Well said. Our number 11 for the 11 is Gary Speed. This is a real chance and a goal. Franco, the Mexican international, scores his first goal for West Ham. It's time to return to the number seven, which is the final position. Uh, And it's up for grabs. Thank you so much to Catherine Batty for reaching out with a voice clip for us and a nomination. Catherine is the women's football correspondent for Male Sport and also a massive Hull City fan. Let's see if that influences her decision for a number seven. 
My pick for number seven is Hull City legend Stuart Elliott, who joined the club in 2002 from Motherwell after they'd gone into administration. First season was successful, finished as top scorer, but it was the 2004-2005 season where he had his standout campaign, um, 27 goals in the league, earned him the golden boot, which he had to share with Dean Windass, who obviously wasn't playing for Hull at the time. But he just seemed to score every every game we played, um, different types of goals. He could score from long range. He could run with the ball. Um, you know, for a left winger to score 27 goals at, at that time where wingers didn't really score as, as much as strikers did was really impressive. And there's a memorable goal where he scored a header from a corner against Swansea. And he, he's only a small guy, Stuart Elliott. He's about five foot nine. And he just sort of rose and he could, seemed to hang in the air when he would go up for a header. And yeah, he scored scored from this corner against Swansea and it, it put us top of the league that night and the atmosphere was just incredible. And one of the, the great things about him as well was his celebrations. He's a very religious man, so he'd always sort of point to the sky in a, in a reference to God. But then after he did that, he would always do a cartwheel and it became his uh, signature celebration when, when he played for us. Also, as all, all good flair players do, at one point he dyed his hair bleach blonde. Northern Ireland international and even though when we went up to the championship he, he was sort of a little bit more in and out of the team he still scored some important goals which helped to stay up before he left finally to go to to Doncaster and had sort of spells around other other lower league teams he was yeah a great character at the time and really kind of embodied that Peter Taylor team during the the early 2000s where um, fans were just starting to get a bit more faith in in supporting Hull again and he was one of our best players during that time and uh, for me is is probably the best, one of the best number sevens to, to wear the shirt, certainly in my lifetime. Stuart Elliott, brilliant pick. And we love whole City players on the 11. We've already had the likes of Guido, haven't we? We have indeed. Camille Zayat. Yes. Yeah, and uh, Nabil Gilas as well. Yes. Yeah, we had him too. So thank you so much, Catherine, to check out her fantastic articles and her Twitter page. Arthur, you've got another nomination. Indeed. Very pleased to have Ronan Murphy get in touch. He is a Bundesliga and European football pundit for Sony Sports and a very nice bloke. So let's hear who he's got to nominate. If, like me, you grew up watching football in the 90s and, and the noughties, you kind of had this idea that a number seven was a typical right midfielder, right-footed player. He'd get the ball down the wing, cross it into the box, kind of a David Beckham type. But then a few years later, there was two players that maybe redefined the right midfield role, and they would have been Arjen Robin and Hulk. And unfortunately for, for this series, Robin wore number 10 and, and Frank Ribery on, on the other side had number seven for Bayern Munich. So you had Hulk at, at Zenit St. Petersburg wearing number seven and for Brazil at the 2014 World Cup playing on the right wing. And both of these players were left footed and would never use their, their right foot. And I think FIFA at the time probably gave them a one star weak foot. They always used to cut inside and shoot with Hulk. He had started out as a centre forward playing in Brazil before he moved to Portugal and then on to Zenit St. Petersburg, who spent 60 million on him. And it took him a while probably to settle because he had fallen out with the, the coach and other players at the club were kind of jealous of the amount of money he was earning. He eventually kind of settled down and then he won everything there was to win in Russia. He was the player of the year. He uh, kind of dominated in Europe. He even scored a couple of goals against Liverpool to knock them out one season and that kind of earned him a big money move to China at the time that China was really the place to go if you wanted to earn a lot of money. But since then, he's kind of 
disappeared from the radar of a lot of people, but he turned up this season back in Brazil. He's playing for Atletico Mineiro. He's back wearing the number seven. He's 35. He was the top scorer in, in Serie A in, in Brazil. He was voted the best player and he helped them win the title. I, I think they ended up winning the treble. So he was a bit of a larger than life figure and he kind of took his career all around the world and maybe more power to him for, for doing it because he's had a successful career. He's even back in the Brazil squad. So something seems to be working out for him and an iconic number seven in his own way. He, he mightn't be David Beckham, but there will only ever be one Hulk, I suppose. Oh, Hulk. He's honestly, <laughs> he's, I think I mentioned him in the, in the Worldies 11 yeah. back at, in episode one mm. of this podcast, a particular favourite player of mine due to his incredibly powerful shot. Yes, incredible and Hulk, two words that go hand in hand. Um, my own nomination for this poll, Arthur, Andy van der Maeder. <laughs> yes, what a player. For me, he is a classic number seven, or rather something that might have been, because he was Beckham-esque in the way that he played. Um, <laughs> was he? Uh, no, <laughs> but he might have been, had he not have been such a rogue. He had an outlandish personality, and off the field he got into all sorts of troubles. Um, he drank and he partied more than he should, he gambled much of his money away and spent lavishly. He recalls from a time when he was at Everton, I bought a Ferrari and the first stop was the News Bar, a popular place in Liverpool. After a couple of hours of alcohol, I drove to the nearest strip club. Getting drunk in a strip club in the middle of Liverpool was not very smart, but I just had this longing for naked women. (laughs) He would eventually see the breakdown of his marriage, sadly, after an affair with one of the strippers that he was involved with. (laughs) That was always going to happen. Come on, Andy. (laughs) He delved into recreational drugs and um, it basically is his footballing career kind of fell off the rails. So it is a bit of a tragic story, I feel for Andy, in that sense. But we forget how good he could have been. Early in his career, he was unpredictable, silky, a wonderful crosser of the ball. And he was a useful set-piece option as well. He played Champions League football with Ajax alongside Ibrahimovic, Van der Vaart, Schneider, uh, and also Inter Milan alongside Davids, Veron, and Zanetti. And he played 17 times for the Netherlands. So what might have been for Andy van der Meijer, who was a, a seven for Everton, but... Rarely a seven as a rating. And I've gone for a a number seven who I consider a true great of the game. Mm. At Man United, more than many other clubs, this number has become synonymous with greatness. You've got Beckham, Cantona, Best, Cristiano Ronaldo. And that's really why I thought I'd pick a player of equal genius. I've gone for Brett Emerton. (laughs) (laughs) Great. What a, what a guy. The Aussie arrived from Feyenoord in 2003 after a successful spell with the Dutch club, during which he made over 100 appearances and won the UEFA Cup. Blackburn were reeling from the departures of Damien Duff and David Dunn. I don't know why the double D. They just love them. They love them. Maybe um, Danny Dicchio was unavailable for yeah, a transfer. Absolutely. And so Brett Emerton was just the tonic they needed. His start couldn't have been better. On the opening day of the season, Rovers won 5-1 against Wolves and Emerton was the standout player in an exceptional team performance. The icing on the cake being his beautiful strike from outside the area. He was full of running and intelligence and very quickly the Rovers fans had a new hero. The only issue, I think, was that his debut set the expectations just too high, really. 
he did grow into a solid, respected and consistent player at Blackburn. Manager Mark Hughes said, He's a player who gives me a lot of options. He's very versatile in that he can play wide at full-back and he can make breaks from the centre of the park. He has the ability to carry the ball from one end of the field to the other and that's why other teams have coveted him this summer. He made almost 300 appearances for Blackburn in eight years. He scored just 19 goals, which isn't that productive for a number seven, but most of them were whilst wearing the number seven shirt. And so for me, with him wearing that number internationally as well, he's a classic number seven. He would go on to make 95 international appearances and score 20 goals. He has the fourth most caps for the men's team. Ooh. Do you know who the other three are? Oh, Tim Cahill. Correct. Oh, who's that defence centre-back? Moore? No. No? Craig Moore? No. Uh, Mark Schwarzer? Correct. And Viduka? It's Lucas Neal oh, was the name you were looking for. <laughs> it is, yeah. For me, Brett Emerton deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as Cristiano Ronaldo. (laughs) (laughs) Great pick. Um, Head over to Twitter, at 11pod, the word, not the number. You'll have those four names to vote for. Stuart Elliott, Hulk, Andy Vandermeider, or Brett Emerton. You decide who the number seven is in our latest 11. A few near misses that are on the bench for our 1-11. to Paolo Futre, he uh, <laughs> actually fought for the number 10 jersey at West Ham. Wow. He basically said he was disgusted that they didn't give it to him and that he warranted such a prestigious jersey. Gosh. So uh, I noticed that story, uh, but I also wanted to mention Gokan Inler. Yeah, Swiss. Yeah, Swiss, formerly of Leicester. Um, he actually wore the 88 shirt oh, wow. throughout his career. Uh, briefly wore the 8 as well. Um, the 8 for Switzerland, but the 88 for club. So um, for that reason, I felt like I had to leave him out. Interesting. I thought of a few different number 11s. One of them was Darren Ambrose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I see him as just a classic number 11. Mm. But actually, throughout his career he only actually wore that number at Charlton Mm. he wore seven at Palace 10 at Birmingham and 17 at Newcastle so I couldn't really pick him on that basis and also I'd like to give a nod to one of my favorite players of all time it's Ricky Lambert at number Mm. seven couldn't really pick him because he wouldn't slot into the right midfield very well he was more of an out and out striker but a great player nonetheless love that Arthur do you want to run us through the team of course at number one we have Miguel Calero Number two, Gary Kelly. Number three, Clint Hill. Number four, Stefan Freund. Number five, Lorenzo Amoruso. Number six, Aldair. Number seven is a choice of yours. Head to Twitter to vote for that. Number eight, Robbie Earl. Number nine, Ivan Zamorano. Number ten, Guillermo Franco. And number eleven, Gary Speed. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.